You can trace back the origins of the fascination with the caracara, a smart, sociable bird of prey, to 1833 when Charles Darwin met an unusual animal in the Falkland Islands. In their inquisitiveness and intelligence, he saw a larger story and wondered why they were confined to the remote islands at the tip of South America. What was the fuller story of this curious bird? Fast forward about 200 years and Jonathan Myberg has picked up those and other clues about this mystery. His book, A Most Remarkable Creature, is part science writing, part travelogue, part history, part biography, and offers a comprehensive story of the Caracara. Along the way, we meet other avian creatures and human ones who, like Myberg, champion these improbably remarkable birds. This is Book Public from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. I spoke to author Jonathan Myberg about his book, A Most Remarkable Creature, The Hidden Life and Epic Journey of the World's Smartest Birds of Prey. Your book is about the caracara. What is the sort of two-sentence back-of-the-textbook definition for us? Caracaras are a very special group of falcons that live mostly in South America, but act more like crows. The answer to my next question, I think, is is really this, you know, 400-page book about the Caracara. Um, your book is Years in the Making, and um, you dedicated yourself to it by traveling, even to some really inhospitable places and doing all kinds <laughs> of research. Um and ever since your, your initial travels, I think as a college student and the research that you did for your master's thesis on the striated caracara um, at the University of Texas, you've done a lot of work and invested so much and so much time. So what is it about this creature that captured your imagination? Well, when I met them in the Falklands back in 1997, uh, I wasn't interested in birds. Uh, I had gone there as part of this fellowship called the Thomas J. Watson Fellowship, which is a weird and wonderful program that uh, funds students who've just left college to pursue a project that they design themselves for a year in countries that they've never been to outside the United States. And the only rule is that you can't come back. Uh, you have to be uh, on your own and you can't affiliate with an institution. You just have to chase your project. And project that I had pitched was a study of community life at the ends of the earth. So I picked the most remote places I could think of as a 21-year-old person and went to them and lived there. And one of the places I went was the Falkland Islands. And I had a vague notion that you might be able to see penguins there. But when I went to one of the outer islands, uh, I met these other birds uh, that looked like a combination of a hawk and a crow and came right up to me and uh, took a pen that I offered them and flew away with it. And they just stared at me with this uncanny expression that was, I remember thinking at the time, it was like they were asking me to do something. And I had no idea what that meant, but it really stayed with me. And um, I feel like in some strange way, this is what they were asking me to do was to write this book. Oh, well, you, you write about um, sort of, you know, all sides of this bird. Um there's this prevailing notion about it that they are, you write, unwholesome and disappointing. And elsewhere, they're referred to as dirty birds and bad falcons. Um, yeah. And you write, 
quote, calling them odd birds of prey feels like calling the painters of the Italian Renaissance a group of unusually gifted apes. (laughs) (laughs) But also, and I feel like more incongruous and therefore interesting, the most striking quality of the Caracara is its mind. Yes. Can you talk about that a little bit? When Charles Darwin met them in the Falklands in 1833, uh, he was so struck by them that he actually devoted more ink in the Voyage of the Beagle to these birds than he did to any other birds that he saw on his trip, including the birds in the Galapagos that are more famous. But what really struck him was that they just came right up to him. They stole objects from the crew of the Beagle, including things that definitely weren't food, like a, a a small cater's compass in a red Morocco leather case, which was never recovered, was my favorite of those. But he said it was tame and inquisitive, quarrelsome and passionate. And yet that species was only in the Falklands and Tierra del Fuego and nowhere else. Now, I, I should say just for clarity's sake that uh, the Caracaras are a group. It's not just one species of bird. Mm-hmm. There are 10 of them and they live throughout South America, except for one which uh, comes north out of South America and even occurs in Texas. But uh, for the most part, they're a South American phenomenon. But And Darwin had met a few of them in, in mainland South America before he saw them in the Falklands, a few of the other species. But in the Falklands, there was just one special species. And while it had characteristics in common with the ones he'd met on the mainland, it seemed to exceed even them uh, in its just curiosity and, and playfulness. And as I said, he used the word mischievous, which is not a word you usually apply to birds of prey, hmm. maybe to a crow, maybe to a monkey, maybe to you know your, your cousin Lenny. but they uh their personalities are so distinct and so strong and darwin wondered what are they doing only here at this at the bottom of the world and nowhere else and he never really answered this question Uh, he went on to other things and so i thought this is an open question and that's the question i pursued first when i was a, a graduate student and then um later in a larger way in this book because i do answer that question but to answer it you kind of have to go back like 65 million years and take in the entirety of what happened to South America and why its animals are so unique. And you do that. It's it's such an amazing thing. I, I love what you do in this book and the chapters where you discuss a human being and the ways in which they engage with the Johnny Rooks or the Garanchos. And Charles Darwin called them flying monkeys. Um, yeah, that was the whalers called them that, the, the whalers who visited and sealers who visited the Falklands and the before Darwin had gotten there even, called them flying monkeys and flying <laughs> devils and all these funny things. And uh, even today, they're still called Johnny Rooks in the <laughs> Falklands, this kind of piratey, whalerish name. And then Charles Barnard has a very interesting connection to them, <laughs> an important one. I mean, you write that he may have been the first human contact. Um, their meeting, you said, quote, was a moment of first contact that had receded into the distant past for most animals on Earth. And they're absolutely, yeah, it's that's mind blowing to me. Well, this is the thing is that these, uh, the Falklands, these little islands off the, the southern, you know, just east of the southern tip of Argentina, uh, are one of the only, if not the only, places in the entire New World that were discovered by Europeans. Amerindian people had gotten to all the rest of it by then, but the Falklands were, so far as we know, never inhabited by any Amerindian people. So the animals that lived there didn't see human beings until they started turning up in whaling ships. 
And so when Barnard, Charles Barnard was a whaler who sailed from New York trying to make his fortune in, in, uh, in the Falklands by uh, killing seals in 1813. Uh, when he showed up and he was marooned, um, he fell out with his uh, shipmates and was marooned on this island in the Falklands. And he found himself confronted by all these birds who were just staring at him. And they, a couple of them tried to eat his shoes and they followed him around. I mean, and you have this experience reading his account of it, of these very intelligent animals meeting a human being for the first time and trying to figure out what to make of us. And then... William Henry Hudson. Yes. He's so important in your work. He was someone who, you write, was suspicious of the scientist's myopia, and his approach to an interest in the Caracara was something quite else. He identified with the Chimango's improvisational lives, you write, as he too came from a family who had adapted to a new life in an unpromising place. I feel like, like I knew who... William Henry Hudson was, but not like, the, I feel like I could be such a fangirl of his now. Uh, <laughs> I just feel like I know so much more. And all of it is so interesting in, in connection to the Caracara. Can you talk a little bit about him? He, he wanted a, you, you, you write, a different kind of history, or he said he wanted a different kind of history, one with animals as well as with men in it. And he, he really believed that they had a really important story to tell us that they offer us advice even about how to survive this world you write um yeah i just found this i just found him so fascinating in your book like extra fascinating he was he's such a wonderful character um and was such an interesting person he was born in uh the in the, the pampas uh that big broad grassy flat region just south of buenos aires and uh grew up there and, and left for England when he was 27 years old after his parents had died and he never returned. But South America stayed with him for the rest of his life and was the subject of many of his books. Um, even though oddly enough, when he's remembered uh, at all, it's as a champion of uh, British wildlife and landscapes because he, he wanted to bring this appreciation for wild creatures that he had as a child um, to a place that he felt had, had mostly lost it. Uh, but he also felt alone in Argentina. I mean, he didn't find many people to share in this interest that he had in animals and plants, um, especially in birds, but not only birds. But when he writes about, uh, when he's describing the chimangos, which are these small caracaras, a different species from the striateds in, in the Falklands, um, but they were common around the farms and ranches where he lived, so common, in fact, that they were sort of ignored. But he said, these are very smart birds. Uh, and I think he said something like um, a bird so cosmopolitan in its habits would have a whole volume to itself in England, but being a poor foreigner, it has had no more than a few unfriendly paragraphs bestowed upon it. Hmm. And he might have been speaking for immigrants of all kinds everywhere. Mm -hmm. You write about the ways that he must have surmised um, this idea we have about bird brains could so easily be debunked. And he believed that birds have their own senses of reason and aesthetics. And for him, this was an all-important thing. You write that he thought it was this, this part, a depressing experience on a first visit to nice people that a parrot is a member of the family. And he was talking about Polly, 
um, on a visit to a That's house. in England. Yes, yeah. in North Wessex Downs, an inn where he stayed. Um, can you share a little bit about that anecdote about Hudson talking to the Lorita in English and Spanish? It's just such a spectacular anecdote, I have to tell you. Uh, that story just flattened me when I read it. I couldn't believe it. What, what happened was that Hudson, many years after he'd arrived in England, uh, he noticed that uh, you know, parrots were a fairly common pet in Victorian England, and it, but it, they depressed him because they were things that people kept to do tricks and, you know, recite phrases. And he he could only think of the birds that he saw flying wild above the, the farm when he was a kid, and and he felt like animals removed from their context really weren't themselves, removed from their natural context. Polly, however, uh, lived in this inn, which is actually still there in the just uh, west of London. And uh, Polly could, had the run of the place. Uh, she went everywhere. She wasn't in a cage. She was on her own. She ate at the table with the innkeeper, who was a widow, and the guests, and would eat whatever they ate. He describes her meals, you know, in great detail, of like eating, just like holding a, a leg of lamb in her <laughs> in one foot and then chewing on it. And uh, but the Polly had come from, she was a, a, a yellow-headed Amazon, sort of a large green parrot with a yellow head. And uh, she'd been picked up by the, the widow's husband in uh, Veracruz, I think, um, some years earlier when she had first arrived in their home, she spoke Spanish, basically. She sang songs in Spanish. She knew Spanish phrases. And over time, she lost her Spanish and gained English. And when Hudson met Polly, Polly didn't want to have anything to do with him. She was mean to him. He tried to give her like a little piece of food or something, and she tried to bite him. Uh, but then he started speaking to her in Spanish, and he said a very strange thing happened. She just stared at him and stared and stared and made little, I think he said, inarticulate sounds. Um, and she didn't suddenly start speaking Spanish to him, but there was something uncanny about what that sound, what the language seemed to call back to her. And then after that, there were friends. Um, that it was, he says, it was the sense that she was conscious of a past and trying to recall it. Mm. And that's, I mean, parrots are very long-lived birds. I mean, a large mm. macaw, they can live 90 years. Yeah. Um, and so, and they have very large minds, they're, they're very large brains rather, um, for their size. Uh, the parrots and crows have especially large brains among birds. And I would wager actually that caracaras do too, but nobody studied them. And uh, th he just had this sense that there was this intelligence there that far exceeded anything people thought birds were capable of. And this is something we see with Jeff and yes. Tina. Can you share a little bit about that? Uh, th th there's something about the, all of these stories about these human beings who encounter birds and are just forever changed by the experience. And the, the story of Jeff and Tina I found especially poignant. Yes. Um, Jeff Pearson is a falconer who lives in, uh, in Devonshire in England, in the, in the southwest part of England. And a, a strange thing in the world of the Caracaras, or a, a strange feature of the world of the Caracaras, is that there are a lot of captive striated Caracaras in England. I have a whole chapter about why that, how they got there and what happened. Mm. But it's not really important to this story. The fact is that there are a lot of these little falconry parks scattered all throughout, especially England, but also in Scotland. And they have, they'll have a collection of falcons and hawks and eagles. But very often, there'll be a striated caracara there also. 
And if you visit these places, the keepers will tell you, if you start asking them about the caracara, they'll, they'll, they'll roll their eyes or start laughing or, you know, and confess to you that this is their favorite because they're so different in the way they behave from the other birds of prey that they have. And Tina um, defied all the sort of conventional rules of falconry once Jeff got her back in the 1980s. Uh, she didn't, uh, wouldn't work with Jesses in a hood. Um, she didn't need to be broken in the way that most birds of prey do in order to accept a human companion. It's sort of like manning a horse. And in that, the, the book H is for Hawk, mm -hmm. um, Helen McDonald describes having to man this goshawk that she, um, she keeps for a season. Yes. Well, Tina doesn't do any of that. Um, she won't submit to the usual training. Um, and eventually she starts teaching Jeff. And one day he, uh, he drops his keys in her aviary while he was going to clean it out. And she jumped down, picked up his keys and ran to the other corner of the aviary with them and then just stood there staring with him. And then she started playing keep away with him. And then from then on, this was a game they played every morning. And it's just hard to overstate how strange this is for a bird of prey. This is not the kind of thing they normally do. Among other things, caracaras are very at ease on the ground, just running around. Mm -hmm. uh, which most birds of prey aren't. And so Tina, Jeff started adapting their games and making them more and more complicated. He started playing a shell game with her. Um, he started bringing her different toys that she liked to manipulate and play with. Uh, he eventually built a device to try to see, understand if she could tell different colors from one another and different shapes. And it got to the point that he could even present her with a set of stuffed animals. And he would do this in public for audiences um, and ask her to fetch one by name and she would just do it. He could even tell her as she had picked one up, he'd say, go get Miss Piggy. And she'd go pick up Miss Piggy. And then he'd say, wait, I've changed my mind. Can you get Nemo instead? <laughs> and she would drop Miss Piggy, pick up Nemo, and then bring it back and drop it in the bucket and get a food reward. I have to admit, every uh, video that you mentioned in your book, I looked up and found. <laughs> I, saw the, uh, <laughs> I saw one of the, uh, I guess it was the assistant, um, with the caracara doing this, Lynn, yeah. yes, doing this trick with the um, the Nemo and the Winnie the Pooh. Um, it, it's it's it was absolutely exactly as you described it, and absolutely <laughs> fascinating. I mean, it, I just I, it was amazing. And then I was down the rabbit hole watching, you know, every other uh, video about a raven or you know every other bird on YouTube. So uh, it was wonderful. Um, I, I'm really glad to hear that. I mean, among other things, I, I was worried writing the book because I thought if I'm describing these things, is anybody even going to believe me? And so <laughs> so happy that these videos existed so that you can at least fact check me on those and, and know that I'm not exaggerating. No, you're not exaggerating in the least. And they are still there. And it was it, it felt like uh, kind of magical to, you know, click on the video and see it again, you know, from the movie in my mind when I was reading your book to actually watching it on the monitor. It was, uh, it was exact. It was very precise. Um, so there's also... My favorite is the one, is, an, is another young bird. I think it, um, uh, it's, oh, which, which zoo is it? Um, Dudley Zoo, uh, where it's very young from its plumage. It's like about a year old. They bring it in in a box, that was a sealed wooden box, and open it, and it comes charging out <laughs> and does a series of different things. And then it runs right back into the box on its own, <laughs> Because it knows, you know, that if it gets back in that box, that there'll be some more food for it. It's, it's just, it's got the whole cause and effect of the situation sorted out. But it's so funny to watch a bird deliberately run into a cage. Oh, that is so funny. I'll have to look for that one. But it was, it was so curious to me too, reading the book and 
reading about the ways uh, the bird would swoop down and pull a pacifier out of a baby's mouth. And I, I know it sounds <laughs> yeah. terrible and perverse, but I thought, oh, I must see that. <laughs> I'm going to have to look for that. Yeah, Jeff had to forbid strollers in the, arena, <laughs> the flying arena after that. But there's Jeff so and Tina, were, they were friends. Yeah. You know? They really were friends. And when she died, um, he was just inconsolable. Uh, Lynn actually showed me where he'd buried Tina, but he, he didn't tell Jeff because Jeff didn't want to know. You know, I read that and I kind of, you know, maybe maybe some people out there really understand this. Um, yeah, I, I totally understood it. Um, and that's just, I mean, I understood it about, you know, a, a pet, but that really mm -hmm. goes to how profound the connection can be for a bird of prey and and this man. Well, it turns out that that falcons, which is the group to which caracaras belong, it's their that's their lineage, um, are closer evolutionarily to parrots than they are to hawks and eagles. That was so fascinating and to learn that. Isn't it surprising? But yeah. when you meet the caracaras, you think you kind of think, oh, well, yeah, I guess that makes sense. It was, well, the, the thing is that the the connection between Jeff and Tina is all the more extraordinary because, you know, we think of like like a dog, of course, has been domesticated over many centuries. Uh, and bred to be uh, friendly, for want of a better word, you know, mm -hmm. accommodating to us. Like you wouldn't keep a wolf. But uh, these birds are wild birds. I mean, they were hatched in England, but they haven't been through some domestication process or something. And the last time that Jeff and Tina had a common ancestor was about 300 million years ago. I mean, a long time. Yeah. So... The fact that they're able to bridge even this vast evolutionary distance and have a friendship, have this connection, is just extraordinary to me. And then there are other birds, other captive birds in England that have escaped. I mentioned the one named Louis that, that got loose from the London Zoo and spent two weeks on the lamb in North London and before he was recaptured, and he did fine. It's incredible. You know, in a major revision, you say to the way we think about birds of prey came as a result of DNA analysis. Mm-hmm. And we know that the history of every organism is hidden in its genome. I mean, there's yes. the story that you tell about um, this this part of it and G7 and trying to to trace what happened to G7. I mean, it the whole thing is like, and this is the thing. In describing this book to my friends, I've said a number of things. Uh, the prose is gorgeous. The book will grab you from the very beginning for all of the mysteries and all of the puzzles it offers and solves um, and then or doesn't solve and leave kind of open-ended. But I've also had to say that the research is so profound. It's so exhaustive. There's history. There's science. There's geography. It's about a bird, but that's also so uh, reductive. It's such an oversimplification. It's just, Somebody the other day in a re review said that calling it a bird book was like calling Moby Dick a whaling manual. <laughs> and I could have just kissed them because it, it is sort of hard to just to say, like the characters themselves, it's kind of hard to say what it is. Uh, it's not just a book for bird people. Uh, I wrote it uh, trying to condense sort of my 25 years of experience with these things from absolute naivete up to, you know, as much as I've been able to gather around me. And to try to take you with me on that journey so that you don't have to bring anything other than just an interest in the natural world to enjoy it. And that's it. I, need, I would say perhaps, I mean, even for someone who, who th 
thinks I have no idea and I don't I've never given birds a second thought would dive right in and not just because they're so incredibly interesting and you know people have to be open to that fact but it is these human connections with Barnard and with Hudson and with Jeff and with Lynn and it's it, there's just a story here and it's so I don't want to say it's unexpected but it's it's such a story you're it's a it's a page turner I mean in its way it really is um and I love the the maps and the photos I mean it's it's all here oh, my favorite section in the book actually is part three which doesn't concern Strait and Caracaras it's a long river journey into southern Guyana with three um Amerindian men Brian Duncan Josie George and Rambo Roberts and a Canadian researcher named Sean McCann looking for a species called red-throated caracaras, which live in tropical forests in, and uh, eat mostly wasps' nests. Mm -hmm. And they nest in giant bromeliads, and they have large multi-individual family groups that raise one chick at a time. Uh, and they're sort of almost tribal in their behavior. They have a territory, but they patrol as a group and spend all their time sort of uh, yelling at anything that they think is an intruder. Uh, that section uh, was just the, the, the greatest pleasure both to research and also to write because one of the threads in the book is um, the experiences of people with Caracaras, but not just Europeans, also Amerindian people who've had thousands of years of experience mm -hmm. with Caracaras throughout mainland South America. That, that's as close as I was able to get to, um, I felt very lucky to be able to travel with Amerindian people in that place. And especially because they spoke English, which was very lucky for me, because mm -hmm. Guyana is about the only place you can find Amerindian people speaking English in South America. But it, but that just goes to the all of the dimensions in this book. It's not, it's as I said, it's not just one thing, and and it is a very, it's a very complex story, but you, but you present it to us in a way that we can really grasp and I, I just appreciate that that's that's quite a feat you know that it's not like Thank this you. super esoteric you know 25 years of of research and some you know some sort of academic research in there too um made the, if, if you read the notes you know the notes are, are yes I think a lot of authors favorite parts of the book because that's where you cram all the real nuggets <laughs> that you you know you just couldn't bear not to have in there like there's a there's a poem about a bird that built its nest in a human skull in there and i reveal the location of el dorado in the north yeah. in the, notes. the notes section is on its own just like this other kind of uh enterprise you know to sort of enter that space <laughs> very impressive and very detailed and wonderful um you're a musician and you've been performing and recording for years how did the research or how has the research and the writing life complemented your music and vice versa? Well, somebody told me that I should just immediately bring up Brian May whenever someone asks this question, <laughs> because everybody accepts that Brian May has a degree in astrophysics and is in Queen. Uh, and, and maybe that there's nobody, nobody looks for as, aspects of astrophysics in Queen's music. <laughs> But the thing is that, that I think for me, both looking at a subject like this and uh, also playing and uh, writing and recording music are just ways to kind of get outside of yourself, which is a feeling that I, the older I get, the more I crave it. Uh, and to, to grow in your, your knowledge and understanding of the, the world that we live in, the people that you live with. Uh, one of my favorite things about playing music is, uh, is that 
other is working with other musicians because people play like they are in some way no matter what their level of technical ability is when you play with another person you see fundamental aspects of them come forward in the way that they play the way they perform that you don't see in any other way uh, and that kind of connection is is really really special it's one of the things i crave most about music and i guess in, in a way in this sort of quest that the, the book is um i was delighted to see other people transformed and myself transformed um, through participating in this this question about what are these birds what are they doing here what does it mean that they're here what's their history what do they tell us about the about the world because by looking through sort of the keyhole of this funny birds that darwin met at the southern end of south america back in 1833 you're able to sort of see the entire world open before you and you could do this this is one of the points of the book really is you could do this with anything um, almost any living thing is going to have a story as interesting and as as convoluted uh, as these birds uh, but these birds charisma when you meet them in the present moment is what really puts them over the top for me. Jonathan Myberg, thanks so much for talking to me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Yvette. Jonathan Myberg is the author of A Most Remarkable Creature, The Hidden Life and Epic Journey of the World's Smartest Birds of Prey. This has been Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides. <laughs>